Have you, have you ever, maybe it's some junk food or some chips. I mean, Lay's had made a whole slogan out of this, bet you can't eat just one. I mean, they're mocking us. Like, there's no way that you can just eat one and be satisfied. There's, there's certain types of food, that the combo of the protein and the sugar and the salt and the carbs has this effect on our brains that causes us to desire more. It's not just enough, it's not satisfying just to eat a little bit. We need more and more and more. There's other types of foods that actually spike your insulin, so the blood sugar levels, and, and so you have this sensation of being full after a short amount of time, but then you crash down, and a short time later, you're hungry again. And so these foods have the promise of being satisfying. I mean, they, they taste good, we want to eat them, we enjoy eating them, and so the, the expectation is that this food is going to satisfy me, but what ends up happening is it doesn't. It leaves me wanting more and craving more, and so it's this false sense of satisfaction. The promise is a false promise. And what else begins to happen, too, is when you sort of diet on these types of foods, a steady diet of this, can actually dampen your ability to enjoy foods that actually fill you up, are actually healthy for you, and don't have this effect on you. So the question that we're presented with this morning is to what degree is this example of eating habits reflective of your overall pursuit of pleasure? How often do we chase after things that are pleasurable? And there are many things that are pleasurable in this world. Money and success and relationships and jobs, work, sex, food and drink, travel, arts, music, all of these things promise pleasure. But do they deliver on that promise? Do what you expect to get from them and what they assume and say they're going to give you, is that actually what happens? Do they deliver on that promise? Are you truly satisfied or are you left wanting more and more? And so this morning, God's word in the book of Ecclesiastes calls us to consider the promise of pleasure. There are certainly a lot of promises made, but are those promises kept? Can they even be kept? The author of Ecclesiastes, who refers to himself as the preacher, wants us to carefully consider the promises of pleasure through the experiences of one who sought pleasure to a degree you and I are never going to know. He wants us to learn from the example of one who sought pleasure to, to degrees that are beyond what the average person could ever accomplish. And as the saying goes, a smart man learns from his mistakes, a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. And so the preacher wants us to learn from someone else. And through his experience, God's word is inviting us to have somewhat of a holy skepticism about pleasure and its promises. It's, it's trying to shoot through pleasure with a bunch of angst and, and frustration in order to reorient us and get us to see, hey, pleasure makes a lot of promises but does not deliver. And that should cause us to consider what expectations we have. And so let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning and just consider this idea of the promise of pleasure and understand that pleasure, the promise of pleasure, is only as good as the one who is able to keep that promise. It's only as powerful as the promise itself. And so let's consider the promises that so much of the pleasure of our world make and actually see, does this last, does this work is it something that we should pursue? So before we, before we jump into uh, this text, I, I want to address something about the author of Ecclesiastes that I, I mentioned in, in the introductory sermon but haven't really got to. But this passage, it's, it's particularly important to address because 
If you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, you've probably heard that Solomon, King Solomon, is the author. And this passage in particular is one of the reasons why some believe that King Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, because this passage talks about things that Solomon did. If you go to the book of 1 Kings and look at the accomplishments of Solomon, there's a direct parallel between this and Ecclesiastes 2. And because Solomon, we know Solomon wrote wisdom literature, we see that in the Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, there's a number of folks that kind of put two and two together and think, okay, this must have been Solomon who wrote this. However, there's a few problems with the idea that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. And I'm going to just very briefly touch on these things because they're not super relevant to the sermon. So if you have questions about this and want to talk and challenge all this, hey, after the service, let's go. But here are three essential things for you to consider. First, nowhere in the book does the, the name Solomon show up. If you go to Proverbs, Solomon clearly identifies himself as Solomon. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we never get, I am Solomon. The closest we get is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. But that could be applied to a lot of dudes. Because if you came from the lineage of David, you were a son of David, and there were many kings that came out of David. So that doesn't specifically identify Solomon as the author of Ecclesiastes. The second, there seems to be more than one voice going on in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not just one person speaking. So you have at the beginning and the end of the book, someone referring to the preacher. The preacher says this, and then most of the book is the preacher talking. And then at the end, you say, the preacher did so-and-so and sought so-and-so. So if you go to chapter 1, verse 1, and then you go to chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, you'll see this voice change. And so it's hard to say that there's just one voice going on in the book. Thirdly, and probably the most telling, is that there are statements that would really sound strange coming from Solomon. So in verse, or chapter 1, verse 12, it says, I was king over Jerusalem, writing in the past tense. If we want to believe that Solomon wrote this after he was king, but scripture tells us he died as king. And so for him to write with this sense of when I was king, but he's still king, it's a weird thing for Solomon to say. And then chapter 1, verse 16 the preacher says, my wisdom surpassed everyone before me in Jerusalem. If you know biblical history, there was only one king who ruled in Jerusalem. Now you're probably thinking, well, what about King Saul? King Saul did not reign in Jerusalem. One king reigned before Solomon in Jerusalem, David. And that would be a really weird thing for Solomon to say, both about David and just, my wisdom surpassed everybody else before me, one person. So it's not that impressive of a statement if you're talking about one person and the fact that he wouldn't, he wouldn't speak this way about his father. And then finally, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, the preacher talks about power and the oppressive rulers in a way that's kind of detached, as if I'm looking at oppressive rulers and talking about how oppressive they are. It would be a weird thing for a king to talk about oppressive rulers when you're the ruler, and talking about all the things that are going wrong in the country when you have the power to fix it. And so the, the preacher, is, it's hard to see the preacher as Solomon when he's talking about power in this way. So I bring up all of this to say what probably is going on in this section is that the author of Ecclesiastes is using Solomon as an example of one who sought wisdom and sought pleasure and sought success through work and ultimately failed because Solomon is the highest example of these things, not only really in Israel's history, but in many ways, history in general. And so for him to adopt Solomon as an example and sort of take on a Solomon persona 
gives us an example of saying, hey, here's one who sought all these things that we want to chase after, and in the end, it left us empty. And so this would be kind of like if I wanted to do a, a talk or write a book about leadership, and I sort of adopted George Washington as a persona to talk about leadership because he's an example, an exemplar of leadership. And so this was common, a common literary move in literature in ancient Mesopotamia. So scripture is using a literary genre to communicate truth. So saying all of that is, so, so this is why I'm going to refer to the preacher or the preacher acting as Solomon, or even just saying Solomon himself, but understanding that it's highly unlikely this is directly Solomon writing. However, now to the relevant points here. It makes a lot of sense that the author would use Solomon as an example because Solomon was a man that far surpassed anyone else in wealth and wisdom and accomplishments. He was a man who had more wealth than Warren Buffett. He was a man who had more real estate than our current president, when our current president was a real estate mogul, he had more women than those guys who start adult magazines. He had more uh, PhDs than the faculty of Harvard combined. <clears throat> His backyard was a national park. He oversaw the building of one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world. I mean, he threw parties that you and I would never get invited to. He tasted food that they only serve in those five-star restaurants you can't get a reservation at. And he had the greatest singers and entertainers of his day come to his parties and perform. And so think about it. If you took the glitz and the glamour of being a rock star or a movie star or a political leader, if you took the respect and admiration and accomplishment of a business leader, an academic leader, or a real estate mogul, any kind of lifestyle that brings wealth and prestige and you put those all together, multiply them by 20, and you have Solomon's life. By every measure this world uses, Solomon was successful and far surpassed any of his day. If he lived today, Time Magazine would just say, hey, you're person of the year till you die. I mean, he was that successful in his life. And so for him to talk about pursuing pleasure and accomplishment and wisdom says something. Because if someone that can do this far greater than anything you and I could ever do, and yet he is coming to these conclusions, it should speak something to us in our pursuit. And so holding Solomon up is like holding a mirror up to our face to consider how we pursue pleasure. And so in verses 1 and 2, the preacher, speaking as Solomon, using Solomon as a figure, says he's going to test the limits of pleasure. This is what he writes, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So when I was in high school, my dad owned a 1967 Chevelle SS 396. That's not, that looks very close. That's not his exact car, but it looks very, very close to that. And so the, the night before I graduated from high school, he let me take this car out with my buddies and drive around. And we just drove around Sioux City, Iowa, having a good time. And at one point at night, we thought, let's see what this thing can really do. So we took it out into the middle of nowhere on a, on a kind of a winding road, and I put, the, I put the gas down to the floor and just started going. And at the point that we stopped accelerating, it literally felt like we were floating. 
It was like, whoa, is this car even touching the ground? I don't know how fast we were going because the speedometer was broken, but it is the (laughs) fastest I have ever been in a car, and it was simultaneously amazing and terrifying because if anything had jumped out in front of that road, we were done. We were testing the limits of this car. We were seeing how fast this car could go. We wanted to see what it was capable of. And this is what Solomon is doing when he says, I'm going to test the limits of pleasure. He's going to see what pleasure can bring him. He's going to see how far pleasure can go. He's going to test to see what its limits are, what it can give to him, and how it can make him feel. And at the beginning, he already sort of tips his hand what his conclusion he's going to come to. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use of it? So immediately Solomon's saying, hey, I just want you to know where this is going to end, but I want you to follow me in my test. I want you to follow me down the rabbit hole and see how I tested these things and so you can see yourself in what I'm doing. And so in verse 3, we see that he first turns to wine. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Searching with his heart, he's experimenting with wine. There's almost a scientific aspect of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to search and test and see what wine can do. He's seeking what type of pleasure this physical chemical substance is going to do to his body. And so drinking wine for a pleasurable experience isn't wrong in and of itself. I mean, wine is, if, if you like wine and there's good wine, actually drinking it, just like if you would drink another drink that you like, does bring a amount of pleasure. That, you have taste buds. God gave you taste buds to enjoy things. And so there is a sense where just doing this to, to enjoy something is not wrong. But there's something more going on here. This word, cheer, literally means to seize, to stretch, to carry off, to pull. And so the literal translation in Hebrew is this, I searched with my heart how to draw my flesh with wine. He's testing his physical response to wine and how far it will go. How happy can wine make me? How good can I feel when I partake of wine? What, what's, what can this substance do to me in my pursuit of pleasure? So he's getting his, trying to get his body to respond in a particular way. Now again, our bodies are meant to experience pleasure. We, we have sensation and we have taste buds and we have the ability to smell and touch and hear. And so these outside stimuli are good. They're, they're, there's a, a sense God created us to enjoy things and so these things are a blessing. If you look at the book of Genesis when God created the garden, everything in the garden was pleasant to the eye and it tasted good. It was a, it was a feast not only for the taste buds but for all of the senses. And so God very much has gifted us with pleasure. But the problem is, is when we miss the limits of pleasure, which then leads to an abuse of pleasure. So it's not wrong to experience pleasure and to engage in activity that bring you pleasure, but here's the question for us, and here's the thing that Solomon is pushing on by testing. Is that the thing that drives you? Like, are you motivated day in and day out by the sense of, I want to feel good? And so the things that I chase after, the way that I live my life, everything is oriented around, I want to feel good. And so pleasure becomes our highest calling. Pleasure becomes the thing that is our meaning. 
And so life becomes all about avoiding pain and pursuing pleasure. And so we, we get off and we go sideways when we make pleasure the meaning, the thing. But what is often underneath all of that is that what we're doing is we're running to things like food and drink or drugs and alcohol or pornography or anything else that we're trying to draw our flesh to get a response. We're doing that because we're trying to bury something. How often do we chase after things that are going to make our bodies feel good because we don't want to deal with the pain of life? Man, I'm going to run and get a drink because life is just too hard. I'm going to go and get on my computer in a room by myself because I don't want to deal with the pain that I'm feeling. I'm going to bury pleasure. Give me release. Pleasure, save me. Pleasure, fix what's broken in me. And so when we test the limits of pleasure, we're going to find something very, very humbling and sobering. It doesn't fix what's broken. It doesn't fix the pain. It doesn't solve our problems. And so Solomon is saying, I'm testing the limits of pleasure, and he invites us to test those things. And when we do, we find that they cannot save us. They cannot fix us. And in the end, they don't satisfy because how often do we have to go back for another hit or go back for another drink or go back for another taste or go back for another look? All of that is showing us this stuff doesn't satisfy. But it's not only these sensations of the body, things that we, we put into our body to cause us to feel a certain way. Solomon also seeks enjoyment in other things, accomplishments and people in wealth and riches. In verses 8, 4 through 8, we read, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any other who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. And there's a lot of pleasure here. There's a lot of things to find pleasure in here. And so he talks about his great works. As I alluded to before, he built the great temple that the Israelites would come and worship in, one of the wonders of the ancient world. But if you go into the book of 1 Kings, you see that it wasn't just the temple. His palace and other building projects throughout Israel and in Jerusalem were marvels. And so he sought pleasure in success and work. And again, don't miss this. Work, to a degree, is meant to bring pleasure. There, there is meant to be a sense where we are pleased and find joy in our work. God designed us for that. But when it becomes the thing we chase after, then we miss that pleasure has its limits. And that's when we begin to abuse it. When we seek pleasure in work and become workaholics, when, when work becomes the thing that gives us the most pleasure and we can bury our pain in, well, then we miss the limits of pleasure and we begin to abuse. Possessions and wealth, having things. It's okay to work hard and have a home. It's good to work hard and have a car that runs. 
It's good to be able to travel and go on vacation and, and experience good things that hard work produces. But when those things are sought in and of themselves to be pleasurable, when, when we chase after pleasure in order to avoid pain, when it's all about, I just want to feel happy and feel good, well, once we hit those limits, we begin to see, wow, the pain is still there. I can have a great house, but eventually the water heater is going to go out, the roof's going to need to be fixed, the foundation cracks, the paint chips, the pain, the decay, the brokenness of the world is going to come cro- encroaching in. I get a nice new car and it's great, it's fun to drive, but then it needs repairs. Or then I find out that it's a lemon and I have to return it and then I'm frustrated. Or I go on vacation and the weather is bad. Or I come home after a great vacation and all of a sudden I gotta go back to work and I'm, all, I'm behind or I gotta, I gotta get on with regular life and real life and all the pain comes flooding back in and we get to see those moments of pleasure are fleeting and they do not last and their limitations become very clear. And what happens is when we seek our salvation in those things, when we want those things to fix us, we just keep digging our heels in and chasing after more and more and more. And so I got to get a newer house, a better car, better clothes, better stuff, better vacations. We think, if I just find the right thing, that's what's going to fix me. And we don't ever stop and think, or rarely do we stop and think, maybe the fact that it doesn't satisfy should tell me something about the limits of pleasure. How often do we seek pleasure in people? Uh, Intimacy in friendship is good. Physical intimacy between a husband and wife is good. And you can have a wonderful date night and a wonderful experience of intimacy, but next morning you wake up and what? The kids are in your ear, diapers to be changed, chores to do, you get in conflict, all of the brokenness and the pain of the world just comes crashing back in, and you realize those moments of joy, while good, They don't fix what's broken. And so if we keep chasing after those things and chasing after those things and chasing after those things in relationships, how we're going to be continually disappointed. And how often do we find ourselves using people for our pleasure to fix what's broken in us? You don't have to be single and pursuing sex outside of marriage to use other people. How often, husbands, do we use our wives? Wives, how often do you find yourselves using your husband to gain pleasure to fix what's broken in you? And so we begin to use people for our own pleasure. Now here's the the trap. These things actually do please us for a while. I think sometimes as Christians, we, we can think that those who don't follow Christ are just miserable all the time. Oh, you don't know Jesus? I guarantee you, you're miserable. When actually, no matter who you are and where you are, you're going to experience pleasure. That's why we chase after these things, right? If they didn't evoke some sort of pleasure in us, we would go on to something else. And so the trap is, is that it actually works for a time. Or at least it seems like it's going to work. Like the junk food that we eat, we feel full, and so we think it satisfied us. And so the deception is that these things, because of the way God has designed our bodies to work and receive pleasure, seem to be working for a time. And this is what the preacher says in verses 9 and 10. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. It was satisfying. 
he experienced some satisfaction in these things. And that's why he kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And that's the danger for you and I too. That's the deception for you and I too. When we, be, we begin to believe that this experience of satisfaction and enjoyment can really satisfy and can really fix what is broken. But as the preacher points out in verse 11, this doesn't last. The satisfaction, the enjoyment is never going to last. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had extend, expanded in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Pleasurable for a time, yes, but always causing us to crash and realize that pleasure was a vapor. It was temporary. It brought brought no real lasting joy in the depth of meaning. It didn't give our lives weight. It didn't give our lives that, that sense of satisfaction and meaning that we're searching for. It didn't actually soothe the pain we feel inside. And so in that moment, we have a choice. We're either going to keep running and keep grinding after it and keep running and grinding, or we're going to wake up and realize, hey, maybe there's some limitations here that should cause me to reevaluate how I'm chasing after this. And then we also find ourselves in a culture that consistently bombards us with images and advertisements and information and messages that pleasure after pleasure is what we should chase after. There's this incessant, unseeking pursuit of pleasure. Whatever feels good, whatever makes me happy, that's what I should be about. And so we're swimming in this stuff, let alone what's going on in our own hearts. The cultural currents around us are just saying, yeah, keep going after it. Keep working at it. Keep grinding. Keep going. That's what you want. That's that's what is going to be your salvation. And that ongoing rush of information and images and advertisements and, and pleasures And it's supposed to be fun and enjoyable and exciting. I mean, we're supposed to be like gluttons at an all-you-can-eat buffet. Just pull up a chair and stuff more and more and more because it's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be good. It's what we want, right? But at what cost? What is the cost to your life? What is the cost to your soul? What is the cost to your emotions? What is the cost to your relationships when you seek the promise of pleasure and it consistently fails. When you keep seeking joy and satisfaction in things that are limited. And so be honest with yourself for a moment. In your pleasure seeking, does it make you a deep, soulful, loving, giving, a godly, worshipful person? one who has hope, one who endures pain, one who can both rejoice and mourn? Does it it give your your, your, your soul a sense of weight and meaning? Or is it hollowing you out, making you sick in your soul? As Robert Sarah writes in his book, Power of Silence, Modern life does not allow us to look calmly at things. Our eyelids remain open incessantly, and our eyes are forced to look at a sort of ongoing spectacle. The dictatorship of the images, which plunges our attention into a perpetual whirlpool, detests silence. Man feels obliged to seek ever new realities that give him an appetite to own things, talking about pleasure-seeking. But his eyes are red, haggard, and sick 
the artificial spectacles and the screens glowing uninterruptedly try to bewitch the mind and the soul. In the brightly lit prisons of the modern world, man is separated from himself and from God. He is riveted to ephemeral things, farther and farther away from what is essential. Ephemeral. You know what the word the preacher uses for ephemeral? Vanity. Same word. Vanity. These things that claim that they are going to give us pleasure and joy and lasting satisfaction are vanity. They're vapor. They pass away. And how many of us so riveted to ephemeral, vain joys and pleasures are red-eyed, haggard, and sick in our pursuit? We just feel like our souls have been hollowed out or burnt out. This is the empty promise of pleasure when we pursue it as the thing in and of itself, when we pursue it as the thing that gives life meaning, when we pursue it as the thing that's going to fix what's broken in us, red, haggard, and sick. Solomon, in all his pleasure-seeking, came to that conclusion. It's vain and empty. It does not give life weight and lasting satisfaction. Now, the mistake that we can make is that we see this false pursuit of joy and think, well, the solution is I'm going to shut down all enjoyment altogether. I'm going to be a prude. I am going to just be this very stern, rigid, you know, too much enjoyment, and that's just a bad thing type of person. And so our life just becomes very structured and rigid, and we shrink in on ourselves to protect ourselves from all of the bad stuff. That is not what the gospel calls us to. That is not the good news of the gospel. That is not what the book of Ecclesiastes points us to as well. The problem is not pleasure. The problem is where we seek it. The problem is not pleasure, but the fact is that our tastes are far too small. The pleasure we seek is far too small. It has limits. That's the problem. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this quote from C.S. Lewis. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We chase after lesser things. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In our selfish pursuit, we trade infinite joy for things that have limits. We trade the thing that actually can fix what, what is broken in us for false substitutes and false saviors. Now, we need to be careful that we don't baptize our pursuit of pleasure with nice Christian language and assume that if I acknowledge God, he's just going to be the big sky daddy who's throwing out nice things to me. Make no mistake that the gospel challenges us at the deepest levels of our pursuit of pleasure. C.S. Lewis also warns this. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. 
There is an aspect where God challenges and pushes hard on our pursuit of pleasure to wake us up and to get us to see what we're chasing after is shallow and superficial and does not last and leaves us sick. And the only way that we are going to change what happens is by the power of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to something greater and turning from our pride and our selfishness to something far more beautiful and lasting. And so true pleasure and joy come when we start by properly acknowledging its limits. And this starts by seeing pleasure as a gift and not a God. In verses 24 and 25, the preacher writes, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So it starts by saying enjoyment is a gift. Enjoyment is a gift of God. Rightly understood, enjoyment is a gift. It is something that we receive from the Lord, not as an in and of itself, but as something to move us past into something greater. So I've, I've used this illustration before, but as a way to reinforce a point. When, when I turned 30, which is more years ago than I want to admit, uh, my wife planned a great getaway birthday for me. We were living in Virginia at the time, and so we went down to Charlottesville to visit Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson, who was one of my favorite historical figures. And so we spent the weekend there, and there were a number of things that she planned, and there were a number of other little gifts that she got me, all to sort of represent things that I enjoyed. So there would have been two ways to really engage that weekend. One, I could have just spent my time with the gifts by myself, just me and those gifts, enjoying those things, and what would have happened? What would have been the, the ceiling for my enjoyment in that if, if I just would have focused on all those little things that she gave me and just walked around by myself? And that's limited joy. That's limited experience. But if those gifts, those things that my wife did, pointed me to something even greater, which would have been an experience with my wife, actual connection with her, those gifts were a way for me to deepen my relationship with my wife, that's where the ceiling gets blown off. And it's the same thing with us and the Lord. The gifts that God gives us to enjoy are meant to push us past the things themselves to Him. When we hit the limits, that's a sign that says, hey, there's something greater, and it's the gift giver. It's not about the gift. And so when we begin by acknowledging that enjoyment is a gift from God, we begin to receive it as a gift, not the thing that we expect to fix what's broken in us, not the thing that we put our hope and our salvation in, but as a way to worship, as a way to bless the Lord, as a way to experience the goodness of the Lord, which drives us deeper to Him, which pushes us closer to Him. And as the book of Psalms points to us, it is in the presence of the Lord that lasting and amazing and joy unspeakable takes place, where pleasure to a degree that we can never experience in things and people in this world we can find. So this is what Psalm 42 says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Oh my God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. There's a longing, a deep longing that we all have that can only be satisfied by the Lord. Psalm 36, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast, not nibble, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. This is pleasure language. God wants you to experience pleasure. He created your body to experience pleasure so that you could actually experience pleasure in him. 
Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 43, 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to, my, to God my exceeding joy. Not just a little bit of joy. Not just, oh yeah, I got this little, little glimpse of joy. Exceeding joy. Overflowing, abundant joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O oh God, my God. And Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, the completion of joy. Joy at its greatest height. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not pleasures with a shelf life, not pleasures with limitation, but pleasures forevermore. Make no mistake, God intends for you to experience pleasure. But the things of this world, as good as they may be, are only meant to point you to something greater and deeper, something far more lasting, far more full, far more deep, far more satisfying. And we get there when we start by acknowledging that pleasure is a gift of God. And then to turn from our self-centered, self-seeking pursuit of pleasure to God through Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for our selfishness. He died for our self-centered pursuit. He died for the times that we chase after money and sex and pleasure and food and drink and other people to fix what's broken in us. He died to set us free and to actually do something about what's broken in us. And so it is when we turn from our sin to Christ that we are set free to experience the kind of pleasure and joy that Psalm speaks of. So in verse 26, the preacher writes, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This passage, this this verse is kind of weird in some ways, like, what, does that mean God takes away stuff from the wicked and gives to the righteous? Sometimes. Sometimes. There is, there is a sense where sometimes the blessing of pleasure and enjoyment goes to those who pursue it righteously. But as Scripture tells us, not always. Wisdom literature is meant to be read as a general principle, not an ironclad promise in every situation, at least in this life. Because there is something true about this in this passage, that one day those who pursue joy and pleasure sinfully because what they're chasing is temporal and cannot last, it will go away. It will be taken away from them. But those who follow after God and find a joy in God, their joy is going to be everlasting. Their joy is going to last. The joy that they experience now is just a foretaste of what's coming. And so there's a very real sense that pursuing joy now, righteously, in a godly way, points us to what we are going to experience later. And so let me close by just contrasting something here. Solomon was a king. And as a king, he pursued pleasure through building great works, through building a kingdom to glorify himself, through using people, using sex, using possessions to chase after pleasure, and if you read in, the, in Deuteronomy 17, he actually did a lot of things that God told the kings of Israel never to do. And so he chased after pleasure selfishly. And how many of us act the king and try to build our own kingdom through pleasure and through our own chasing and building after things that we think are going to make us happy? 
And for all of Solomon's effort, what happened? Temple's not there anymore. His gardens aren't there anymore. All the great works, man, you can see the rubble and the ruins, but they're not there anymore. Solomon built a temporary kingdom built on temporary pleasure. In In contrast, Christ, the true king, the greater Solomon, the one that we really put our hope in, he was selfless. He built a kingdom through sacrifice, laying down his life to save others. He's built a kingdom that is eternal, a kingdom that will not pass away, a kingdom that offers joy and pleasure in things that aren't going to dissipate and break down, where sin and moth and rust won't corrupt. The kingdom that Christ built is an inverted kingdom. It's built not on using people, but serving people. Not on wrecking ourselves and being red-eyed and haggard and sick with our sin, but being set free to really enjoy life and being able to experience all that God has for us, to find lasting joy and hope forever. That's the kingdom that Christ built. That's where true pleasure is found, and that's what Solomon would call us to. That's what the preacher calls us to. That's what God's word calls us to this morning. Amen.